My name is Jeff Schleter. For those who don't know me, and it's my joy to serve as a member of the pastoral team here at Cross of Grace Church. If I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you and meet you after the service. But this morning, I have the joy along with you of opening up God's word together. And I'm expecting that as we open up his word, that he will meet us, that he will speak to us through his word in grace. And so please turn in your Bibles, turn into your devices, your Bible apps of choice, whatever you got, to Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Mark 15, 1. And we'll be reading from the ESV, that is the English Standard Version, this morning in English, as we all together, once again, as we do each and every Sunday, learn how to read God's Word. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 15, versículo 1 a 15. Jesús ante Pilato. And now, as we dive in to Mark chapter 15, the night has passed and the morning has come. And now, in the clear light of day on that first good Friday, we behold the starkest of contrast between the perfect innocence of Jesus and the perverse guilt of man. Once again, Jesus is on trial, and so are we. Mark, he's setting before our eyes the, the awful sinfulness of man in order for us to take in oh, as much as we possibly can the amazing love of the Savior. Jesus, he was condemned last week before the Sanhedrin, and now he must stand trial before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Let's turn our eyes to him as he takes his stand for us. Beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 15, Mark writes, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to him, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. These are God's words. Would you join me in a prayer for God's help? Oh Lord, we come now to what is the very center of the gospel of Mark. But Lord, even more so than this, the very center of, of history, of your purposes in the world, of our very lives. Everything rides on this moment, as Christ, as it were, stands at the base of the mountain he would climb, as he would begin his ascent just after this, 
to the cross. And Lord, we pray that as we see him standing here, oh Lord, that we would see him standing for us, that we would see his love, that we would see our sin, and that we would see the grace of God and the gospel in a fresh, in a new, and a clear way. So I pray that, Lord, you would fill me and fill us with your spirit, that we might receive these words and see your son for your glory and for our good. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, Jesus takes his place before Pilate in order to take our place before God. This is the central focus of our time together today. It's the theological center of the text and the chief design of Mark's narrative. Really, it's the the heart of the gospel itself, the good news that we confess and believe and stake our lives upon. Summed up like this, that as Jesus stands trial, he stands, listen, for us and as us. As Jesus stands trial, he stands for us and as us. As he stands trial, he stands in the place of sinful and guilty man in order to pay for the sin and guilt of men. That's what's happening here. That's the central thing we cannot miss as we look at these verses today. And through all that Christ endures in these short verses, during the early hours of that Friday morning, the story echoes that verse of the great hymn over and over again. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Over and over, that refrain echoes through this text today. Every aspect of the narrative, it brings us back to this central truth from top to bottom. As Christ is brought before Pilate and is presented to the crowd, Mark is emphasizing for us that Jesus is innocent and we are guilty. He sets these realities for us side by side in order that we, seeing the ugliness of sin, would all the more see the beauty of Christ's love for sinners. It's like a good cop, bad cop sort of situation, right? As we look across the interrogation table, as this text makes a claim upon our lives and hearts, we see love and sin grabbing our attention, dialoguing back and forth, showing us something profound. And and truly, even more than that, this passage really is the whole thing, a living, breathing illustration of Christ's love for us and our rejection of him. If we were to ask the question, what does his love look like? It looks like what he did when he stood before Pilate. That's what we'll marvel together at this morning. And what about our sin? If we were to ask, what does our sin look like? To take it from the the concept and the abstract and to say, what does it look like when it comes out and we see it for what it is? Mark 15 replies to that question. That the very essence of our sin looks just like what the crowd did when Pilate presented Jesus to them. So watch carefully this morning as we make our way through this text. And listen, as we do, as we do look upon these things today, here's my hope for us. That if reading a text like Romans 5.8 that says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If reading a text this morning and hearing that today doesn't affect you, (laughs) would this passage be your cure? Look to Christ and see his love. Or perhaps this morning you've come in today and you've concluded, maybe you haven't expressed it, but you've concluded you're thinking about this, it's weighing and gnawing upon your heart, that you're too far gone, that you've rejected Christ too much or have pushed beyond the limits of his forgiveness or are just too unlovable 
for him. If that's you today, look at the crowd. Look at the crowd. See a living, breathing portrait of the very sin that made the cross necessary. A cross that Jesus willingly bore as he stood in the place of sinners just like that. And so in the rest of our time together today, we'll watch in wonder as he stands for us before Pilate, as we walk through the two parts of his Roman trial. First, Jesus before Pilate in verses one through five, and then second, Jesus before the crowd in verses six through 15. We begin with our first point, Jesus before Pilate. And as we return to the story in the Gospel of Mark, we remember that just last Sunday, after nearly a year devoted to the Gospel of Mark and 14 chapters of asking the question all the way along, who is Jesus? That question was answered upon the very lips of Jesus himself last Sunday. Who is he? He said himself, he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power who will stand in judgment over all, especially those who currently stand in judgment over him as he's on trial. He is the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, and not only that, but the very son of God, who rules with God's own authority from God's own throne, who's come to bring God's own salvation to his sinful, stiff-necked, and rebellious people. To all this, Jesus said, I am. That's me. This was the good confession he made in his trial before the Jews. The very words that last Sunday, very words of truth, that sinful man would call a lie and charge him for blasphemy and condemn him to death. In Mark 14, Jesus stood condemned before the Jewish council. Now, they must see to it that he is condemned before the Roman governor. This is the next and the final step toward the cross. So we turn our attention to verse 1. And as the scene begins today, it's 6 a.m. on that Friday morning. The whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the high court, is gathered together to draw up what is a political charge that they'll make against Jesus before Pilate in order to have him executed. This is necessary because Pilate, the Roman governor, he doesn't care about in-house Jewish theological disputes. He doesn't care about any of that. But he does very much care about Roman law and order and threats to Caesar's reign. And so Jesus, he's bound in chains and presented as a criminal as he's delivered over to the Gentiles, just as he himself predicted back in chapter 9, verse 31, and 10, verse 33. And we might ask the question, why do the chief priests come to Pilate? Why do they want Rome to kill Jesus? It may be that, though they had some freedoms back then in the first century context to self-govern under Roman rule, the Jews could not, you know, officially, capital O, execute capital punishment. So it may be that. But why didn't they just, you know, kind of stone him off the books, as it were, as they would later do with Stephen in the book of Acts? Why not allow it to remain an in-house manner or matter? And so this morning, I'd submit this, that the Sanhedrin, they want to get rid of Jesus, but they want to keep their hands clean in the process. They want to do so for fear that they have of turning the people against them as they pursue their agenda against Jesus. And mind you, the population of Jerusalem has swelled in recent days, in this week, right, with Passover pilgrims who have come from all over to celebrate in the festival. Swelled with pilgrims, many of whom entered the city just a week beforehand with the caravan from Galilee proclaiming, Hosanna! (laughs) Hosanna! There you go, kids. (laughs) Many pilgrims came proclaiming, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord just five days prior to this moment. And so there's a lot of popular, you know, excitement, energy, support for Jesus. 
So they don't want to turn the people against them. They want to allow Rome to be the bad guy, you know, whose authority the people would think twice about questioning and rebelling against. And so they want Rome to do their dirty work for them. And further, to keep their hands clean, to keep the people at bay, and finally, probably to humiliate Jesus. Right? Humiliate Jesus through the shame of death upon a Roman cross. They want to make sure that after all is said and done and their dirty deeds are complete, his followers and his movement falls apart after his death. They don't want it to last. They don't want it to survive. They want to see Jesus displayed on the hill so that nobody would speak his name again. They want it to be dead and over, and they want to publicly discredit him for all time. That's their goal. That's their agenda. That's why they go to Pilate. And in verse 2, as Pilate begins to interrogate and to question Jesus, his question to Jesus, it implies the political charge that was made against Jesus, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And we infer that the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of claiming to be the king of the Jews in order to make him out to be a political threat to Rome. Because the Jews did have a king, actually. And Pilate was actually staying at his house during the festival. So this is kind of ironic. He's staying in King Herod's house. And King Herod kind of gets to wear like a Burger King crown while Pilate, you know, is in town. And he, uh, you know, gets to uh, supervise him. But he's in the house of the king of the Jews. Some other king of the Jews comes in and is claimed by the Sanhedrin. And this could be a problem. <laughs> Upsetting the social order in Judea and in Galilee and in the province. And potentially a threat to Caesar, who is the king of the largest empire in the known world at the time. So this is the charge they make against Jesus. They think this will get Pilate's attention. This claim challenges the social order that Pilate and the Caesars worked very hard (laughs) to maintain. And so Pilate now has to decide, as Christ is brought before him, is Jesus or is he not some kind of political agitator? So he asked Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? Which Jesus answers, you have said so. He says, you have said so. He does not say, I am, as he did before Caiaphas, but he also doesn't deny the title. His form of response, it's like an indirect affirmation, a sort of qualified yes in response to Pilate's question. Indirect and qualified in order to express that, yes, I am the king, but Pilate, I'm not the kind of king that you would expect not the sort that you are used to. And as we see in other parallel accounts in John's gospel, during this conversation at this point, Jesus relayed to Pilate that he was the king, but that his kingdom was was what? Not of this world. For if it was, his servants would be advancing it through worldly means of might and power. For if it was, his servants would be in that very moment pounding on the doors trying to secure his release. Yet, this isn't the case. Jesus, he is a rightful king, the king of the Jews and the king of kings, in fact. Yet, unlike the king that Pilate would expect, he'd establish his kingdom through a cross. He would conquer all of his enemies by taking the very worst that they could throw at him in his crucifixion and then would triumph victoriously over them in his resurrection. That's how Christ would conquer. That's how Christ would establish his rule. And this is something that Pilate wasn't prepared to wrap his mind around. And so regardless of how much, if any, of this nuance that Jesus introduces, Pilate understands, his response to the governor causes Pilate to conclude that this rabbi is probably not a political revolutionary. So far in the trial, he considers Jesus, and we can't miss this, to be innocent of the charges against him. Pilate sees no reason for this man to die. And in verse 3, the story advances, failing to achieve his condemnation through the initial charge brought against him. Verse 3 says that the chief priest, they just carried on accusing him of many things, just throwing everything they could at him, accusing him falsely, misconstruing him, slandering him, insulting him, charge after charge, like blow after blow upon his character, upon his innocence. And ironically, we have here Jewish priest accusing a Jewish man before a Gentile leader. This is so backwards, it's unbelievable what's happening and transpiring here. They throw everything that they can at him in order to make Jesus out to be a political threat who is worthy of death. Yet, 
in verses 4 and 5, we see that similar to his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus does not open his mouth to respond to these false accusations. We remember from last week that in this silence, as he stands trial now, just as he stood trial then before the Sanhedrin, his silence, it's showing us, Mark is wanting us to see that he is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah predicted, who when oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. He is the servant of the Lord, and also he, in his silence, he trusts God to defend him. He trusts God to vindicate him. He trusts his father to establish the true verdict over him, and so he opens not his mouth. Pilate says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. You, Jesus of Nazareth, won't you defend yourself like any person would? But Jesus made no further answer, verse 5 tells us, so that Pilate was amazed. And a sovereign grace pastor, C.J. Mahaney, says all throughout the gospel of Mark, we've been reading it, Jesus, the whole time, he's been amazing everyone through his authoritative teaching, through casting out demons, through healing sick people, commanding the very wind and waves and miraculously providing for thousands of hungry people, confronting the corruption among the people and calling out Israel's faithless leaders. Christ throughout the gospel, he is amazed by his power, amazed by his authority and boldness to speak. But here, he amazes by his silence. His silence, it speaks to Pilate about who he is. It furthers the testimony of his innocence. Whereas the Sanhedrin, and look at the contrast here, the Sanhedrin burst into Pilate's office first thing in the morning on a holiday, clearly out for blood. In contrast, here stands Jesus. He's calm. He's in control. He's conducting himself like an innocent person would who had nothing to fear before the tribunal, who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was guiltless of every charge. Yet, even so, that's not all his silence says to us this morning. For even as his silence speaks to Pilate, listen, it also speaks to us and for us in an amazing way. What do I mean here? Because on the one hand, though his silence declared himself to be innocent, on the other hand, it naturally causes us to ask, well, then why didn't he defend himself? (laughs) If he was innocent, why wouldn't he defend himself? Jesus, he actually had a defense to make against the charges that were brought against him. But he declined to present his case. Why? Why does he decline? Because as he stands trial, he stands as us. He stands as us. The verse echoes in our mind once again, in our place, condemned he stood. In the place of guilty sinners who themselves, don't miss this, who themselves have no defense. As we stand on trial, not before any human ruler, but before God. As John Calvin argues, already here in this very moment and throughout the remainder of his trial, Christ conducts himself as accountable for our guilt. And because of this, he keeps his silence. Friend, listen, he keeps his silence because he stands as you And as me, people who have no appeal to make, no defense that we can give, nothing at all that we can say before the holy and just judgment of God. Just try to consider, okay? Christ is standing before Pilate. It's a picture. It's an illustration. Just try to consider if you were to stand before God and to stand before him without Jesus, apart from Jesus, not according to his work, but just you yourself, before God. Who would have anything to say? Who already in their conscience isn't standing self-condemned, aware very much of guilt and shame and law-breaking, understanding we fall very short of his righteous standard, the standard he's revealed in his word, the standard he's imprinted upon our heart in our consciences. Christ keeps his silent because we have nothing to say, 
No excuse we can make for our sin against God. It's as Romans 3 says, that God's law, who he is and what he requires, the kind of righteousness that he has, it's come to us and we know it in such a way as law has come so that, Romans 3.19 says, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, every last person, may be held accountable to God. This is our situation. As we would stand before God, we would have nothing to say, no appeal we could make, nothing that we could utter to get ourselves off the hook for our rebellion, to get ourselves off the hook for our rejection, to somehow skate by and escape the penalty that our sin deserves. And so in this moment, in love, the innocent one is silent because he's come to take the fall for sinners like us. And in love, he maintains his silence so that his trial would proceed to the cross where he'd pay for our very sins against God. That's what's happening here. Don't miss this. He's standing as us. Christ stands trial, Mark wants us to see, as a sinner. And the question develops, just what, of, what sort of sinner is he standing for? Well, that's seen very clearly in the light of that Good Friday morning. And now we turn our attention to the crowd who is currently gathered outside the governor's quarters in Jerusalem. Pilate will interact with them. He will present Jesus to them. And we will see ourselves in them. And this brings us to part two of our story, our second point this morning, Jesus before the crowd, verses 6 through 15. And if I could sum this up at the outset, here in verses 6 through 15, we encounter an awful portrait of man's hatred towards God. And that might seem to be solemn and dramatic language, but it's not an exaggeration. What we see here is a shockingly bloodthirsty scene in which human depravity, all the ways we go wrong and go bad and live out the corruption we've received from Adam is on full display. These verses, they answer the question, why did Jesus stand trial for us? With the answer, because we sinned like this, like the crowd is sinning. So let's dive into the scene here. Now, in the first portion of this Roman trial, the case, it didn't go anywhere for the chief priest, right? It was failure in their mission to get him condemned before Pilate. And Pilate's lack of responses to the charges that they made in the first part, they indicate Jesus' innocence as he perceives it. Yet, the leaders of the Jewish people, they're still here, mind you, on his doorstep, and the governor has to do something about this Jesus. He can't just sweep it under the rug. The chief priest, the highest ruling body of his constituents, as it were, is banging on the door. He's got to do something. He's got to resolve the problem that Jesus has posed for him. He's got to make a decision about who Jesus is and what he ought to do in response to him. And so Pilate, being the pragmatist that he is, he recalls the custom of the prisoner release during the Passover time, which served to you know, pacify, to appease uh, the Jewish resentment against their Roman occupiers, because they're not there upon request, right? And so this would be done annually during the Passover to curry some favor, to have some goodwill back and forth between the parties here and keep the Jewish people from rebellion. And Pilate, he knows that the chief priests, they want Jesus dead, and the politician that he is, he even understands that it's because of their own envy of him, as we read in verse 10. It's not a true pursuit of justice. It's not a real serious charge that they really think he's a, a threat against Caesar. They just are jealous, and they want to take him out. But Pilate believes that the people of Jerusalem will have different desires than the priest. And so because of this, in an attempt to deal with Jesus, to give the Jewish people what he thinks they want, and in, in kind of in a way snub the petty desires of the chief priest, Pilate seizes upon the prisoner release as a solution to his problem. Now he can wash his hands of this and he can go about his day and everything will be cool during the Passover and he can move on with his comfortable life. No rocking of the boat there. 
And so verses six through eight, the text tells us, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among, don't miss these details, the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. So Pilate, he turns to the crowd and asks, likely with a little bit of mockery thrown in, do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? Seeing no guilt in Jesus, he offers him up for the prisoner release, thinking that I'd rather you take this guy than some actual criminal. And in the way Mark sets up the scene here, he's indicated for us in mentioning Barabbas the way he has, and as we'll see it unfold, that there are really two options for the people to choose from. Jesus or Barabbas, who in Matthew's gospel is actually also called Jesus as well. That's his personal name. So there's two Jesuses. Which one do you want? (laughs) Will they have their so-called king who stands before them falsely accused or an actual murderer? An insurrectionist who is guilty of the very charges, don't miss this, that have been brought against Jesus. This is so upside down. Will they have the innocent Jesus or the guilty Barabbas? Pilate offers this choice to the crowd. And verse 11 says this, But the chief priest, they stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. This is not how Pilate thought it was going to go. These corrupt and faithless shepherds of Israel persuade the people to choose a man who had taken life over the very prince of life. However it happened, whatever exact appeal was was made upon the hearts of the men and women within the crowd, in this moment, they behold an innocent and righteous man and they choose a guilty, law-breaking one instead. They see Jesus, and they don't want him. And listen, whether the crowd became convinced that uh, Barabbas' manner of bringing in the kingdom, as it were, right, through violently overthrowing the Romans as a would-be political savior, was better than Jesus' so-called kingship, you know, know, the kingship through which he would conquer sin and be the savior of the world, just through the cross, which was a stumbling block to them, whether they felt the pressure, maybe, to be viewed well by their peers and by their leaders and were fearful, maybe, of the retribution of the Sanhedrin and they wanted to conform and, you know, not encounter any social tension or pressure there. Whether they just became caught up in a mob mentality. (laughs) Who knows? We can't say exactly what was happening in their hearts, but what we can say is that their hearts were able. They were able to be so moved against Jesus. Sinful man does not choose Jesus. So very easily, they're turned against Jesus. In verse 12, Pilate, he's actually taken aback by this. Not that he's a big proponent of Jesus. He just thinks it's a slam dunk. Which guy do you want? It'll probably be this one. You call him the king. He seems like a good guy. (laughs) This guy is a murderer. But Pilate, taking aback by this, and again, showing and pleading Jesus' innocence, even though he is an unrighteous Roman governor. Verse 12, Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What then would you have me do with this Jesus? (sighs) Horrifyingly, in response to this question, the people cry out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him to death on a criminal's cross. The death that was reserved for the worst of criminals, in which one would be first beaten and then tortured, affixed upon a wooden crossbeam as nails were driven through his feet and his hands, hung suspended in the air, forcing oneself up in order to breathe by pressing down on the nails on your feet, every breath, every gasp, painful and tortured and violent, left to die on that cross from the combination of hunger, of dehydration and exposure to the elements, death usually setting in, not quickly, but over the course of days, all the while being 
made a public spectacle, mocked, derided, shamed. This, this was the ultimate form of humiliation and disgrace in the Greco-Roman world, in the empire that was known at the time. And amongst the Jewish people, it was even worse because theologically, right, it was perceived as a sign of God's own curse upon a person. Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged from a tree. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 21 told Israel that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man that is hanged is cursed by God. The Jewish people, in no uncertain or unclear terms, they look upon Jesus and say, let him be killed and damned to hell with this Jesus. Astonished even further, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? He doesn't belong here. He doesn't deserve this. In another indication of Jesus' innocence, Pilate responds to the crowd and demonstrates that he just can't understand why they would want Jesus to die. Ironically, in this moment, he's more concerned about doing justice than the Jewish people, the ones who had received God's own law. This Gentile ruler, to whom the law has not come, is more concerned with trying to be law-abiding than God's own people. Once again, he appeals to the people in verse 14 to behold Jesus' innocence. But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And picture this, the mob has been stirred up. They've turned hundreds, thousands of people gathered outside the king's quarters. Jerusalem is full of people. Jesus and Barabbas stand side by side and they cry, they shout, Crucify him. Crucify him. The mob is is feverish. They're (laughs) crying out. And as John's gospel says, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own received him not. The very best of mankind, and that's a relative term, right? Because none are righteous. No, not one. But the very best of mankind, God's chosen people, Israel, set apart from the rest of the world, who received God's own words, shout for the death of God's own son. Sinful man does not want Jesus. They choose a murderer instead. And listen, that's that's the point. (laughs) They choose a murderer because they are a crowd Full of murderers. And this isn't exaggerative, okay? Though they haven't killed anyone with their two hands, the same evil lies within their beating hearts. And here's what we can't miss today <laughs> that same evil lies within our hearts as well. That same hatred, that same self centeredness lies within us and expresses itself out of us in actions and words and attitudes. And we would find ourselves at home amongst that crowd. We, we are the crowd. And so the point here is that this scene isn't just a bunch of, you know, particularly awful individuals, right? Just a a couple outliers who are rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. But truly, it's a picture for us, an analogy, an illustration of all humanity rejecting God himself, It is a living illustration, what we see here, of the sinfulness of sin. In our lives outside of Christ, the very essence of our sin, all of us, was and is wanting to do away with God. To reject him as our creator and as our our king. To reject his law, which he's etched upon our hearts and we know it to be true, that's been impressed upon us through our conscience, to live in his world 
that he's made as his creatures, as if we were not accountable to him. And yes, we can say our culture certainly does this left and right, up and down, all the day long, and we can look out there. But we can also look within and see in our hearts every day in big and small ways, subtle and gross and grotesque, ways that we live in God's world as if we're not accountable to him. Ways in which we put ourselves in the center, do what is right in our own eyes, lean on our own understanding, trust in ourselves and not in God. Ways in which we dethrone him. We, in effect, destroy him. Try to replace him, the true God, with a God of our own design. Whether that be ourselves or, or something else that can't sustain the weight of our hopes, that can't deliver on any promises and ultimately leads to destruction. What does sin look like, church? We asked the question at the beginning. Sin looks like this. Seeing God presented before you and saying, we don't want him. Crucify him. Get him out of our lives. We think it'll be better that way. That's what they represent. That's what we all would find ourselves doing. Had we been there then, that's what we do now, day to day in our lives. We are the crowd crying out to kill God. We want Barabbas because we are Barabbas. Murderers at heart who wanted to get God out of our lives. And here, in this awful moment in Mark's gospel, the murderers, they get their way. Verse 15, try as he might, Pilate could not persuade the crowd, and as unjust as he knew it to be, Jesus' innocence as clear as the day on that Friday morning. The text says, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He lets a condemned criminal walk free and clear. While Roman soldiers take Jesus, they bind him to a post in order to torture him. Preparing him for crucifixion by whipping his, backs, his back and his legs mercilessly. With a, rip, a whip made of leather on the ends with bone and with metal and with little bits that wouldn't just whip the skin and leave a welt, but would tear it and rip it to shreds, blow by blow by blow. They prepare his body for crucifixion. They bind him as a criminal in order to cut down on the time he would need to hang upon the cross through this savage torture. And yet again, this is another picture, what the soldiers do, of man's antagonism toward God as the soldiers delivered blow after blow upon the beloved son of God. This whole scene, church, man, it's just a freight train of sin that's packed and loaded and rushing headlong off the tracks. It's a mess. It's a monstrosity. In this trial, in this condemnation, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there is nothing excusable on man's part whatsoever. In one expression of sin after another, all the human characters in this scene, and we would find ourselves in league with them, reject Jesus. So Mark, in this scene, he gives us a look, angle after angle, into the heart of sinful man, bent in on itself and disfigured in, in so many very awful ways. Question for us, question for you. Where do you see your own heart beating in rhythm with the characters in this scene? Because it's multifaceted. It's not just one size fits all, but there are many ways in which our, our sinfulness, our rebellion against God, the ways in which we're prone to dethrone him comes to express himself. Where do you see yourself in this scene? Because as we look at it, we see the pride and envy of the chief priest who wanted glory for themselves more then they wanted glory for God. We see the murderous heart of the crowd, which hated righteousness. They looked right at it and said, it's evil. We don't want it. They loved darkness instead of light, and they longed for a world without God who would hold them accountable for what they did. We see Barabbas, the violent revolutionary, who in effect took matters into his own hands, trusted in his own self-sufficiency, and placed his hopes in a kingdom that he could build 
apart from the saving power of God. And finally, we see the gross injustice of Pontius Pilate. And in this crucial moment in verse 15, like all the rest of mankind, Pilate saw Jesus' innocence and his righteousness, but he suppressed his knowledge of the truth because, frankly, a world rid of God seemed easier for him to live in. Better, Pilate thinks, to satisfy the crowd, to please people, right? To take the path of least resistance, to remain comfortable, you know, keep his job and not risk upsetting the peace of Rome, than to embrace the cost of confessing Jesus as he is. Maybe lose his job, maybe even lose his life if things go sour here. To do what he knew was right, and perhaps if he'd done so, he might exchange the peace of Rome, but he might have found everlasting peace with God. But along with the crowd, instead of this, Pilate chooses Barabbas over Jesus. Barabbas, whose name, simply translated, it means son of the father. Son of the father. And we see Barabbas is one disobedient son of the father who woke up that morning, that Good Friday day, and found himself on death row with the expectation that what was coming to him was nothing but judgment in his future. That's what awaited him that morning when he woke up. But now, with what's just transpired here in verse 15, an exchange has occurred. In another living illustration, what does love look like? What does the gospel look like? It looks like this, that Barabbas, a convicted criminal and murderer on death row, has been released to the people. And Jesus has stepped in to his place to take his punishment, the innocent one in the place of the guilty. And Mark, he doesn't want us to miss this, that Jesus will bear the cross that not just Barabbas, but we ourselves deserved for the very crime of choosing Barabbas over Jesus. He will, Jesus, embrace our rejection of God in order to atone for our very rejection of God. That's what's happening in the cross. So what does love look like? It looks like stepping into the place of every Barabbas he'd come to redeem. My place, your place, your place, and your place. To take the punishment that we deserved for rejecting the one true God and King. The King of the Jews who was accused of treason against Caesar would submit himself to a criminal's death and resolve to bear the cross for traitors against God. That's what love looks like. And once more, oh, we're singing our song, aren't we? In our place, condemned he stood. As Barabbas goes free and Jesus steps in. In our place, condemned he stood. He stands for us and as us. As the Apostle Peter says, he will suffer on the cross he's about to bear for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. To bring us back to God, he will go out to that cross just after this. That cross where man's high-handed rejection of God would reach its absolute peak. That cross where the love of God will be poured out most perfectly on those who have been revealed to be utterly unworthy of it, yet loved anyway. Where God's justice and mercy will meet in Jesus' death to satisfy God's judgment against sin while sparing sinners like us from the judgment we deserve. Oh, what grace! What love, what a savior we have in Jesus. And this morning, I would ask you, hearing this, hearing this gospel, have you trusted in this savior to bring you back to God? If you're not a Christian today, the risen Christ who died for sin and now reigns in heaven, he stands before you today and through this word, 
he makes his appeal. And he says to you, stop choosing Barabbas. Stop choosing Barabbas. Whatever your Barabbas is, whatever you're substituting in the place of God, whatever Savior you're trusting in that's not Jesus Christ, he says, stop choosing Barabbas. Turn from that and trust in me instead. Because there's no Savior, there's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Only his cross can take away our guilt and shame. Only what he's done can set us right with God. Every other choice, every other so-called Savior will leave us standing in the place of condemnation in which we began at the outset of our time together today. Leaving us self-condemned and standing, not just self-condemned, but also condemned by God. Experiencing the punishment in full we deserve for our sin. Being separate from the one who is life and love and joy himself now and forever. No other Savior can bring you back to God. Not a life of comfort and pleasure. No amount of self-medication. No security that a career could provide. No identity that you receive from other people. No living like, (laughs) I'm at the center. I'm accountable to no one and I'm free to be who I want. No other savior can bring you back to God. No Barabbas can bear the weight of all your hopes and could sustain and deliver upon the promises of life and joy and peace. Only Jesus can. And today, in love, he offers himself to you. Stop choosing Barabbas and trust in Christ instead. And for all of us, as we close our time together today, would we prepare our hearts to respond to this word now and prepare our hearts to live in response to this all the time as we go out into this week and as our lives are given back to the one who's redeemed us from death row? Would we respond and prepare to respond by seizing upon this reality? That if Jesus did not stand condemned, we'd never be able to stand before God with anything to celebrate at all. But he took our place then that we'd be able to come into this place now. Cross of Grace Church could exist now. We could stand and sing praise now. Because then he was silent as he stood accused in our place and on our behalf so that now we could come into the presence of God with something to say. And church, what do we have to say? Do we come trembling with terror? Do we come with with shame, with apathy, empty excuses for our sins? Or do we come with singing, bearing shame and scoffing rude? In my place, condemned, he stood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray and then let's sing.